would have you look with me at Judges chapter 6. Judges 6. One of the things we need to remember as we work through the book of Judges is that what we are observing is the product or the end of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. That's said two times, once in chapter 17 and verse 6, the other in chapter 21 and verse 25, the very last verse of this book. It was the intention of the author, primarily the Spirit of God, to let us know that what we're studying is every man doing what they think is right. And the Proverbs tells us twice as well that there is a way that seems right to a man, but that end is the way of death. And in a sense, the book of Judges portrays a degenerate society. A society that has fallen over and over into sin. That's why we can so easily relate to what we read in this book of Judges. When we read, like we will again, here in just a moment, of the children of Israel again doing evil in the sight of the Lord. How many of us can bear witness and testimony that that's exactly what we have done? And thank God he is a God full of mercy. He is a God full of grace. What we're reading in Judges is what we could call sacred inspired history. And we do well to learn from it. Paul in the New Testament tells us a verse we've referenced before in our study that what was written in the old is for the benefit of us. And there, of course, I'm paraphrasing what he said. It was written for us as an example. We don't necessarily have to retrace these steps to the same degree or to the same level of depravity as the ancient Israelites. You'll notice that I dealt very little with chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the song of Deborah and Barak after the Lord worked through them a great deliverance. But please read it and study it on your own. There's much to profit from in that fifth chapter. I will point you to the last verse of the song that both Deborah and Barak sang. Verse 31 says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. What both Deborah and Barak do here at the end of this song of theirs is to pray in an imprecatory way. Imprecatory praying, and that is praying for the Lord to act out against his enemies, is hard for some to stomach. But it reinforces truth that we need to remind ourselves of, and that is primarily that there are only two sides in life. You are either for Christ and with him, or you are outside of him and against him. Those who are outside of Christ... Some of them actively, purposefully, and even powerfully oppose him and his word, his will, his church. 
It is right for the people of God, as Deborah and Barak here do, pray for the restraining hand of God to be upon them. What did they say? Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. Of course, we know that if God chooses, he can humble the Nebuchadnezzars among us, right? But most often, that's not his will to do so. That's a unique thing when he does it. He raises up and empowers his enemies and takes them off the scene when he is through using them. And to pray like Deborah and Barak here in an imprecatory way is to just plead with the Lord that he would hasten and speed their removal. That he would hasten and speed his being done with them. So it does accord with righteousness and the sanctification of the Spirit of God dwelling within us who is further conforming us to the image of his will. So that's how they end their prayer and you'll note their, their song and you'll note that the land had rest for 40 years. That's the cycle. The cycle of sin, the cycle of bearing the consequence, the groaning or crying out to the Lord, the Lord hearing, answering, acting, raising up a deliverer, affecting great deliverance, rest, and then the cycle repeats itself. So we are at the end and the beginning of another one of these cycles. And this morning we meet with Gideon for the first time. It'll take us a couple of weeks to work through chapters 6, 7, and 8 as the scriptures deal with Gideon. We have much to learn from him. We have even more to learn about God through his dealing with Gideon. Much more to learn about the character of God as he deals with the sinfulness of mankind. And one author has said, and I think he's right, one of all the accounts of deliverance in the book of Judges, none is more complete nor complex than the story of Gideon. There are over a hundred verses that deal with Gideon in this book. He is one of the judges, and I'll remind you, we studied Shamgar a few weeks ago. There's just one verse for him. Just very quickly, he comes onto the scene and then moves away, but not so with Gideon. We need to do more than just have a character study of Gideon, though. We don't want to come away from this and just end by saying, go be like Gideon. Because everything Gideon did was not good. And so just to quickly summarize chapters 6, 7, and 8, Gideon was called to the Lord. We'll see that this morning in verse 11. He was confirmed in that calling through the offering of a sacrifice and the Lord's accepting of that sacrifice. He was commissioned to two things, really. First, to destroy the altar of his father, the altar of Baal, and then to go after the Midianites as one man and destroy them. He was cautious in his work. Lord willing, next week we'll see that, the whole issue of his laying out a fleece before the Lord. And he was in command of what began as a large army, and then the Lord reduced it to 300 men. And so if you've been following along carefully, you'll notice his calling, confirmation, commission, caution, command. And then when we get to the last point, I intentionally dropped the alliteration with the letter C so as not to soften 
this last point, and that is his sin. The whole issue of Gideon collecting gold from the people, making an ephod, and then having the people worship that ephod seems to be and is a a very great blight on Gideon. We'll get there in a few weeks, but beginning, I want you to pray with me as we look at chapter 6. My intention is to get all the way down to verse 35 in this chapter this morning. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we come to your word this morning. We understand that every Every word of it is inspired and profitable for us. Lord, we ask for your help and understanding. We ask, Lord, that you would open your book to us and help us to come away from it with a greater understanding and appreciation and thanksgiving for the salvation that is ours in your Son. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen. Here is the first point to be made from Judges chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, but here's the point of them. Sin always brings the judgment of God. Sin always brings the judgment of God. Let's read the verses. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves, and strongholds, which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel." Neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming up in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice again the scriptures tell us that the children of Israel did evil. What was the evil? We need to be reminded that they would go and worship Baal and Ashtoreth. Both of these, one a god and the other the goddess of the people of the land of Canaan, would provoke the Lord, their true God, to jealousy and his anger would burn against them. And we're reminded in verse 1 that this evil is performed in the sight of the Lord. So all evil is performed in the sight of the Lord. There is no hiding. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And notice that the Lord delivered them. This is more than just the Lord allowing the Midianites to come and plunder them. This is the Lord causing it to happen. He gave them over to the hand of the Midianites. And then we have in in these few verses a great detail of the effect of being delivered into the hand of the Midianites. 
Notice what they do. Notice how heavy the hand of Midian was up on them. The scriptures tell us because of them, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves, and strongholds in the mountains. When they would see the Midianites coming, what would they do? Literally, they would run for the hills because they knew what was coming and what was going to happen. I don't know if you can help but see the similarities here with what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. When in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This seems to be a natural response of the people to hide themselves from coming terror. But the point that we need to make and be reminded of, a den, a cave, a stronghold hewn out of an earthly rock is no hiding place against the coming fury and wrath of God upon mankind who will not repent of their sin and come to Christ. That's why in the Olivet Discourse, the Lord said, when you see these things happen, many are going to want to run to the hills to find a hiding place. There is none. But that doesn't stop many from being busy with the hammer and the chisel, does it? Trying to make a hiding place for themselves for the coming day of the wrath of God. Many, though not literally, many figuratively are making themselves caves, dens, and strongholds in the mountains for the coming day of God's wrath. Can we just see here that that was an effort in futility? It did not stop the wrath from coming. It did not stop the experience of reaping full consequence for sin. And the same can be said for those who are attempting to fashion a covering for themselves through good works of any type, of any amount. In the end, the Lord finds people in dens, caves, and strongholds and executes his vengeance against them. Notice the total destruction. All of their crops, when they had sown what would happen, the Midianites would come and reap the full benefit of the crop and what they didn't want or need, they would then destroy. So Israel was left with completely nothing. Not just their crops and produce, but they would leave neither ox nor donkey. Their livestock were taken from them. We're given the description here that they were as numerous as locusts, and they came without number, would enter the land and destroy it. Israel was left greatly impoverished. That's, that's a word of importance it literally means that they were left dried up, emptied, or made small. But there's one more thing that I want you to notice before we move on. 
Though they were left dried up, empty, emptied and made small, they were left fully aware of it. I want you to see here with me a very real prefigurement of hell. And that is in, in this way. Experiencing the horrible consequence of sin, the punishment for it, and being aware of it the whole time. That's what hell is. Yes, Jesus refers to it as a lake of fire, as Gehenna, the second death. But there is a conscious awareness in hell. Those who would find themselves in a devil's hell, or more correctly said, a holy God's hell, are kept by the power of God under the power of God's wrath, fully aware for all eternity that they are experiencing a just retribution for their sin and unwillingness to turn from it. Do you see that here in the first six verses of Judges chapter 6? Experiencing the great consequence of sin and yet being fully awake and aware to it. There are some who teach and some who desperately want to believe that when you die, that's the end. There is nothing. There is no awareness of anything. Those who hold to that view, teach what is called an annihilationism. When you're, done, when you're dead, it's all finished, over, done, and you are gone off the scene, and nothing more is left to experience. There couldn't be anything further from the truth. And that's why I phrased that as I did. Those who find themselves in hell are kept by the power of God, fully Aware that they are experiencing a just and holy God's wrath eternally poured out against them. Why would you not flee from that? In this day of grace and salvation, why would you not run as fast as you could to Christ and lay hold of him? Because just as surely as this day came for the children of Israel, that day is going to come for all of mankind. Do not let the fact that God is patient and long-suffering, which he is, and the scriptures declare that he is, do not let that fact lull you to sleep and make you think that this holy God will not one day fully exact just vengeance against a sinful people. He will. So by the end of verse 6, what we find is the truth of this first point, and that is that sin always brings the judgment of God. Sometimes that judgment of God is known immediately. Sometimes it is never really recognized in this life at all and then poured out all at once in the end. Regardless of how the Lord chooses to bring his judgment, we affirm and agree that sin always brings the judgment of God. But what we need to see secondly is that the judgment of God upon sin is always 
just. It's always appropriate. It's always right. By the time we reach the end of verse 6, we have the children of Israel crying out to the Lord again. And notice, based upon their actions in this same chapter, we don't even have to get to the next chapter. Based upon their actions here, this is not the crying out of repentance to God. This is just bemoaning their condition. This is just the full recognition of the misery that they are in. This is to be equated to the rich man in Hades. What did he do? He cried out, bring a drop of water, place it on my tongue, because I am tormented in the flame. But in verse 7, the Lord does give a response. And it's an unexpected, it's an unusual response. It's a response that we haven't yet seen in the book of Judges to the cry of the people. In most of these cycles, when the people cry out to the Lord, the Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge for them. This time, before he sends them the judge or the deliverer, he sends them a prophet. In verse 7, it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. This is what the prophet said. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you, gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the God of the Amorites. The word fear there means worship. In whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Let me reread that. And just point out the activity of God in it. The Lord says, I brought you up. I brought you out. I delivered you out of the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out. I gave you their land. I said to you, I, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Perhaps the Lord sent them this prophet as a reminder that the consequences they find themselves in stem directly from their own foolishness in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and his giving them over. The Lord sends a prophet because Israel needs more than immediate relief. They need to understand why they are oppressed. And hear these words Again, this name you're familiar with increasingly, Dale Ralph Davis, he says, one of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of his word to expose the reasons for our helplessness and 
misery. Do not despise the mercy of God in bringing conviction to you for your sin. Conviction of sin is a work of the Spirit of God. It is very often unpleasant. It heaps, as it were, coals upon our head. Very often we can feel the weight of conviction upon us, but please hear the words, do not despise God's mercy in bringing conviction of sin. Run to Jesus. That is the only place. He is the only place where conviction finds a full relief. There is no other. Everything else is a cave, a hewn-out spot in the rock, or a stronghold that will not bear you up in the day of real trouble. And perhaps God sends them this prophet to reiterate the point. If he were to deliver them, at this point in the story, it's not a settled fact that he would deliver them this time. The point is being made, if God raises a deliverer for Israel this time, it is an act entirely of grace. What have they done to deserve to be delivered again? Nothing. And he has proven it to them by the words of the prophet. I delivered you. I delivered you, I brought you out, I gave you land, I did all of these things for you, and you have not obeyed my voice. What is the logical conclusion in our minds? You're getting just what you deserve, and I'm going to leave it to you. Not so with the God of grace. How we cannot see that God is full of grace and mercy from this passage. We have to just pull the blinders down over our eyes and refuse to believe it. If we reject that God is a God full of grace. If we reject the idea that God acts on our behalf outside of any earning on our part, then what we've done is just read these verses, closed the shutters, and are proceeding with our own preconceived ideas of how God is, what his character is, and then in the end we prove to be acting and believing based upon mere human logic. This is the way that people deal with one another. You sin against me, you get what you deserve. The God of grace says, you sin against me, you get what you don't deserve. You get mercy. You get grace. So the first two points, sin always brings the judgment of God. The second point, the judgment of God upon sin is always just. The third point, the just judgment of God upon sin necessitates a powerful Savior. How can the Israelites get out of this trouble again? The only answer 
God must intervene. He must raise someone up to deliver them. And this is where we meet Gideon. In verse 11. You know what his name means, Gideon? It means one who hacks. One that is a a hewer out of stone. Isn't that interesting? Earlier in the chapter, there were people who were hacking in stone, trying to find a stronghold. And yet God raises up a hacker for them. But he's not going to hack on stones. He's going to go hack down an altar of Baal. This is what Gideon's name means. And you can't help but smile and be humbled or even brought to tears when you read God's interaction with this man initially. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah. The angel of the Lord here again, understanding to be most likely the pre-incarnate Christ. This tree and land belonged to Joash. His son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Here's another bit of irony. Gideon's father's name, we're told here Joash, which was probably a shortened form of Jehoash, means the Lord or Yahweh is strong, but yet he is the one who has the altar of Baal set up near his house and responsible for its well-being. And we find his son Gideon, the hacker, doing an unusual thing. He is beating out wheat in a wine press. A wine press obviously being the place where the grapes were tread out. But yet, because of fear of the Midianites, he is hiding in the winepress, beating out wheat. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? He's hiding in a winepress to beat out his wheat out of fear. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, and addresses him as a mighty man of valor. This is the way most people deal with this. Most people look at this and they say, the Lord saw Gideon for who he truly was. And Gideon just needed opportunity to rise to the occasion. And so then the application comes, go be like Gideon. I don't think it could be further from the truth. The Lord here sees Gideon not for who he was, nor for who he is currently. The Lord saw him as he would make him to be. And these words from the angel prove to be prophetic in that point. I realize there's a little bit of difference and nuance there, but please catch that. 
It's not who Gideon was all along and just needed opportunity to rise. It's whom the Lord saw a weak, fearful man hiding in a wine press, beating out the wheat. He addresses him as a mighty man of valor because he knew what he would do with him. That's why just a few verses later, he says, now go in this might of yours. In other words, the Lord is telling him, go in the strength that I am supplying for you. Can you see yourself in Gideon here? My goodness, I can see myself as Gideon. Here is a man who was out of a normal place, fearing he was ill-equipped to do what the Lord was calling him to do. Here is a fearful and spiritually weak man The Lord comes to him for no apparent reason. What reason could there be? He comes to him for no reason out of pure, unmitigated grace and says, you mighty man of valor. The scriptures tell us everywhere the Lord uses weak things. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many powerful are called. We're told that his strength is perfected in our weakness. And what was Paul's response to that? Since that's the case, therefore, I will all the more gladly rejoice in my infirmities and weaknesses. Because when I am weak, then you prove to be strong. Gideon was not yet fully aware of this, but he would be soon. He would be made mighty by the Lord for the task which the Lord had called him to. But before we get to his might, we have to be somewhat amused by the interaction that he has with the angel of the Lord. It's kind of hidden from us in our English translations, but let's see if we can draw some of it out. After the Lord addresses him as the mighty man of valor, Gideon says to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? Other English translations translate this first phrase, Oh, my Lord, with a lowercase l as, Dear sir, dear sir, what do you mean the Lord is with us? Can you not observe the surroundings? I am in this wine press for a reason, beating out my wheat, because we are under the judgment of God. Why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. The Lord doesn't respond to any of that. Verse 14, he says, the Lord turns to him and says, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And you can't help but see the similarities between Gideon and Moses. The same supernatural type of things happening in their presence, the same excuse the same initial unwillingness to be obedient to the call of God. 
And then in verse 15, Gideon says to the, to the angel of the Lord, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? And he lists his lack of credentials. He says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So on first, the first two points of his list of lack of credentials, in the Lord's view, check, check. Gideon, you're getting it right. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Notice the magnitude of that phrase. We were told earlier in chapter 6, the Midianites were descending upon the children of Israel, innumerable, could not be counted. And the Lord says to this man hiding in a wine press, he says to him, you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Now it makes a little more sense why the Lord sees him in the winepress and says, you mighty man of valor. You are just the one I've been looking for. You are weak. Your father's house is weak. You are least. You're the man. How often does that come up? In the scriptures, Samuel, he sees David's older brother. What does he say? Surely this is the Lord's anointed. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. He is built to be a king. And the Lord says no over and over and over again until he finally, is this all of your sons? Nope, there's one more. He's out in the, out in the field. He's, a, he's just a shepherd boy. He too was a mighty man of valor that the Lord would raise up and use. The Lord says to him in verse 16 again, I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then Gideon says to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that, is, that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. So the Lord allows him some time. Time enough for Gideon in verse 19 to go and prepare a young goat, unleavened bread, put the meat in the basket, bring it in a pot, brings it to the Lord under the terebinth tree and presents it to him. And the angel says to him, the angel of God said to him, take the meat, the unleavened bread, lay them on the rock, pour out the broth, and he did so. The angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat, the unleavened bread. Fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And now Gideon begins to, to come around and to realize, verse 22, he perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, what's the natural response? What was Moses' response? Gideon has the same. Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. What was Gideon expecting? Immediate death. No one sees the Lord and lives, right? The Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day... 
it is still an offer of the Abazarites. Now it's time for this mighty man of valor to act. So far, everything has been in preparation. So far, he has heard everything from the Lord that he needs to hear. I'll be with you. I'll go with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. But now the point of action has come. What does the Lord call him to do first? And we're in verse 25. The Lord said to him the same night, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven, seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. This, was, this would have been the image of Ashtoreth. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. Take the second bull, offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image that you shall cut down. So Gideon took Ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And some mock Gideon questioning, is he really a mighty man of valor? Why does he need the cover of darkness? I think that is to misunderstand the magnitude of what he has been called to do. Go to the center of town. Tear down the false god and the image next to it. Burn it. Build an altar to God and offer the sacrifice of your father's animal on the altar. Remember, this was his father's altar. And again... I like what Dale Ralph Davis says here. He says, obedience here was essential. Heroism was optional. What does he mean by that? The bottom line was, would he be obedient or not? If he did it in broad daylight, of course, he would be heralded as a hero. The point is, he did it nonetheless. That is very often the way the Lord calls us to obedience. When he presents something before us and we know that he is calling us to do it, it doesn't always have to be done with great fanfare, but it does have to be done. And that's what Gideon does. In fear. And those of you who were with us in Sunday school this morning, this is the same response that the woman with the issue of blood had in fear. She reaches out, touches the hem of Jesus' garment. Jesus turns and looks at her, and the scripture says, with fear and trembling, she fell before him and told him the whole truth. This is not an unusual response of people coming to obedience. The point is that you come in the end. That fear doesn't keep you away. Lack of courage doesn't keep you away. And again, it's worth saying there is a point in the life of a true believer when anything which initially caused fear will be cast aside, pushed to the periphery, and you come, and you come boldly to the Lord. 
though he does it by night. What's the response? Well, we can imagine what it would be, but thankfully we don't have to imagine. We can read it in verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. The wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they awake to a fire. They smell the smoke. They see that the altar has been cut down. The offering is being made. They said to one another, who has done this, we are going to kill him. Thankfully, his father comes to his aid. And in the midst of it, he gives him a new name. And in so doing, for whatever reason, Joash, Gideon's father, begins to mock Baal, the false god. And he says, if he is a god, let him plead for himself. And in the end, the altar remained torn down, burned into ash. And the mighty man of valor has fully arrived on the scene. This is just the first of several great things Gideon would do in the strength and power of the Lord. The one thing that he does, the whole issue of the ephod, he does in his own strength, according to his own dictates. I trust what we've seen in this sixth chapter at this point as I close is that sin always brings the judgment of God. Always. You and I will not be the ones who skirt out from under the judgment of God because of our sin. Secondly, the judgment of God upon sin is always just. That was the point of the prophet, right? Reminding, I've done all of these things for you. You've been disobedient. And then the third point, the just judgment of God upon sin necessitates a powerful Savior. And that's what Gideon would eventually be. But in that, Gideon is a type. He's a foreshadowing of the one true powerful, saving judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question only remains for us is will we go in this might of his? Or will we continue to hack at the cave, the stronghold, and find a place to hide, which is no hiding place at all? If you are not hidden in Christ on the day of God's wrath, you're exposed, bare, and naked before the Lord. Come to Christ. He will receive you, and in receiving you, He will save you. Now, and ultimately, and finally, in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sixth chapter of Judges. And the truth of it, the things that we learn here, how it points to Jesus at every turn. 
Help us not to see the greatness of Gideon. Help us to see the greatness of Gideon's God, even our God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.